I used to run this PMO in Texas and we had this big weekly status meeting and this one part of the company was always over allocated. And I'm in a meeting one day and we got this new gig and I'm like, well, who's going to handle it? And the head of the department says, you know, Sundrum's going to handle it. I'm like, Sundrum's already uh, allocated it 450%. This will put them at 550%. And they were like, yes, exactly. Yeah, just do that, right? (laughs) Okay. Okay. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Mike is back. Mike, thanks for taking time out of your Friday afternoon. Always. We're, we're trying to do like one of these a week or something now, yeah, aren't we? We're, we're doing good. We're doing good. Better habit or something like that. Hitting the new year strong. Yeah. And good I'm deal. selfishly trying to make them about things that I hear people leading Agile talk about, especially you. Okay. That I know are clear to you and Dennis yeah. and some other people. And some of them are clear to me and some of them are not. And sometimes it kind of shifts. And okay. there's a thing we're going to talk about today, which is the physics of Agile. You talk about physics okay. all the time. Yeah. And I know that this is really sorted out in your head. And I know you've done webinars on each one of the four laws of leading Agile physics. Yeah, well, I mean, basically what I'm trying to do is like to me, it, it gets into a lot of this like idea of there's just there's just like an underlying set of principles that make this stuff work. There's just an underlying set of things that have to be true. And right. everywhere that it fails, it's because those things aren't true. And okay. and so what I want people to get out of the mindset of is if I just show up and do scrum, it's going to work. Um, I want people to understand if it's not working, why it's not working. So okay. go into it. So I don't even know if I remember all the four. It's been a minute since I did this. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it's just like talk about, right? So just as like a parallel, you can't pretend that gravity is not an issue. Gravity is an issue. And so these are things that. Yeah. In yeah. the absence of these, this stuff is broke down. Yeah. Um, so the first one, capacity okay. versus demand. Okay. So how would you explain, you know, to folks like what, what you mean when you say capacity versus demand? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this stuff comes out of like some of my early consulting days. And, you know, I, I grew up in project management. I think you, you grew up in project management yeah. too, right? And, you know, the, the physics of the world when it comes to approving dollars to get something done is, is time, cost, and scope, right? I need to know how right. long it's going to take. I need to know what it's going to cost. Um, and I need to know what I'm going to get for my money. It, that's just the basic principles of it. And, and really to calculate what I'm going to get for my money, I have to understand how much capacity the team has to do the work. And I have to understand the um, the size of the backlog, right, at the end of the day. Okay. And I was just on the phone with an executive um, previous hour, and he was wrestling with some te- things with his team and our consultants, candidly, uh, just in this in this space. Okay. And, and what the organization wanted to do was to basically be able to say, this is what we're working on. This is what isn't done yet, or this is what's in the backlog. Right. And he's like, that's useless to me. I'm like, well, because what he's asking for is, I mean, what a leader needs to know is um, we have X amount of dollars. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trying to produce this thing. And, and what we need to know is we need to know where are we going to be when we run out of time and money? Mm-hmm. Or if I need to put more money in, um, how much more can I get or how much faster can I go? What trade-offs right. do I need to make? Right. You need levers as a leader to be able to manage your business. Okay. And and sometimes like what's what's so difficult is that we we know that estimates are wrong. Yeah. Right. We know that estimation isn't perfect, rather. Right. Um, really mature estimates. Like I learned a lot from Glenn Allman in the early days. Right. And, you know, one of the signs of really immature project management is that we have point estimates. We say, oh, this is how long it's going to take. We don't know how long it's going to take. We right. have we have a, a range and, yeah. and we don't know how long it's going to take the people necessarily to do it. Right. And and so it makes it really imprecise. And so. Because people have been exposed to what I'll say is bad managers that manage off of point estimates and fixed time, fixed cost, fixed scope, and all these different things, right. then you know the the response in the agile community often is, well, we're not going to give you dates. Um, you're just going to get what you get when you get it, kind of yeah. a thing. And and because we're agile and you know we don't make and meet commitments. But but a well-run agile team, like I have zero problem. Like I put everything up on a board 
and I'll do t-shirt sizes. Okay, fine. I'm not usually okay. a big t-shirt size guy. And then I'll take the extra smalls and I'll make them a one. I'll take the smalls, I'll make them a two. And I'll take the, what the mediums and make them a three and the larges and make them a five and the extra larges and make them right. an eight. And I'll just do something really rapidly like that. And then as we get in, as the team gets in and starts working with the backlog, then we start measuring the rate at which those estimates mm -hmm. can be completed. Yeah. Right. And and so the 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 rate of throughput of the team compared to the size of the backlog gives me the ability to start to anticipate um, again, duration and scope. And yeah. so so like nothing works. Right. Nothing works. Um, in a in an environment that 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 has to be able to telegraph what it's going to do. Okay. If I don't have some understanding of the throughput of the team, some understanding of the size of the backlog, um, and so basically that's what I say is like we have to understand capacity and demand. And if okay. we don't understand capacity and demand, now, <clears throat> now where where this where this goes, like if you look at traditional project management, like one of the problems that that we have is that we know that the estimates are imperfect right. and we know that human beings are not fungible across work. And as much and as we that, pretend they are, as much as we pretend they are. Right. So as a software developer, too, isn't a software developer, too. Right. Because, I mean, yeah. people have life issues and get sick and go on vacation and do all kinds of right. weird things. Right. Don't show up. They have bad days, all kinds of different things. And and so, you know, the the myth in traditional project management was off was often if I knew the estimate. And I could reliably predict how many hours that that person was going to take yeah. to do the work. Then I could start, um, you know, putting together a project plan and lay all that stuff out. Okay. But the reality is, is we know that human beings are all over the place and the estimates are wrong. And so there's this illusion of precision that doesn't actually exist. And okay. so what Agile did is it came along and it said, OK, we're going to take out we're going to make the individual not so much the capacity of throughput. We're going to make okay. the team the capacity of throughput, the cross-functional team the capacity of throughput. And yep. we are going to sub-optimize the individual's performance and productivity for okay. the steady throughput of a complete cross-functional team. Okay. And so that is the explicit trade-off that, um, that Agile is making um, in the world, is that it's okay. basically saying, I am willing to sub-optimize the performance of the individual for the sake of stable throughput of a team. And okay. what I think we've proven over the last 20 years is that a complete cross-functional team that gets to stay together will stabilize throughput over time. Yeah. And it will give us an indicator of uh you know, throughput, right? Velocity sure. in our work, right? And so if I if I have a reasonable assertion about the size of the backlog and I have a reasonable assertion about throughput of the team. Where that gets kind of weird, right, is then you get in all kinds of conversations about comparing velocity against teams and, and different things. Sure. And so we can, we can unpack this for an hour. If you so it sounds to me like you're kind of advocating for flow metrics over just story points because flow metrics would give you a historical, more clear well, representation of the way work is moving through the system, right? Well, well so story point – well, I don't, I don't know that I, I necessarily understand or agree with the distinction, right? I can use okay. – velocity is basically a measure of flow. Um, where where you might be going is that there is a big movement. Maybe it's still a movement. I don't pay that much attention to me around the no estimate stuff. Yeah, and and when that. that first came out, I'm like, you people are crazy. What are you talking about? And they're basically like, yeah, you just break everything down and you, you know, you just start counting the number of things that you can do. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, that makes no sense if they're all variable sizes. And they, and they said, no, you break them down small break enough to make them like smaller ones, yeah. Well, I'm like, okay. Well, so if you've broken everything down to a one, Right. You're effectively estimating. Okay. You've estimated that this is now a similar size. Okay. It's half, right? So, okay, yeah. cool, right? If you can get everything broken down to a one, use pure flow metrics, how many widgets am I getting across the board on any given period of performance? Cool. Yeah. All day long on Sunday. But okay. where that will fail is when you have wide variation. You might be able to get away with a lot of ones and an occasional two or a lot of ones, occasional two, less occasional three. And you, yeah. and you deal with that variance and it, it kind of pops out in the wash. Right. But if it's like if you've got stuff that are like 20s and you don't know it and you got right. stuff that are fives and you got stuff that are ones and then you got stuff that are I don't knows. Right. Um, like this is and this is the fallacy in Agile. It's like it's like. 
Yes, there are small companies, startups, maybe some fast moving things, maybe where they don't have like direct customers and they can just evolve the product based upon customer demand and they're printing money and, and whatever. Like, sure. Right. I'm sure it does exist. But but most companies that are out there are they have limited dollars um, to try to achieve a certain goal and market by a certain time. Yeah. And, if, and if that is what you're trying to do, like no estimates t-shirt sizes, rough guesses, it's just not going to help. Right. And so, so a mature business, and this is where it gets back into poor management or not understanding project physics or something like that, is that it's like, um, the it's, it's at the end of the day, like, like I have to be able to say, um, this team's velocity is 25 and then it went down to 10 and then it did this. And like, we have to be able to analyze the data maturely and understand what's going on. And okay. it's reasonable for a leader to say, Hey, I understand your velocity is 25 a sprint. I need to go twice as fast. What can I do to go twice as fast? Maybe you can't. Right. But maybe I, there's been plenty of times when I've found crazy impediments that are slowing down a team that they're not escalating. Yeah. Um, latency issues, onshore, offshore, availability of hardware, all kinds of different things that have gotten um, that have been problematic in the past. I so want to highlight management can do. Yeah, I want to highlight the way you just said that because like I worked with two teams this spring, overplan every quarter, every single sprint, never finish their work. And when I asked them why they're doing that, they say, "Well, we have to do all these things." Like, but you know, you can't. But we have to. Right. right. The, the shift should be. If leadership was not saying you have to do all these things, if leadership was saying we'd like all these things, what can we do to make that possible? <clears throat> I'll tell you two stories. Yeah, that's, closer to that's, that. I'll tell you two stories. Um, back when I was more on the ground consulting in the early years where um, before I became CEO and run a company and stuff like that, one of the questions I would ask leadership teams is, is, is it safer here to say yes right. and to fail than it is to tell somebody what you can really do? And I've had answers fall on both sides of that. Yeah. There are some companies where it is safer to just to say yes and then to deal with it a couple months later. Hands down, right? Not okay. healthy, not good, but there are companies where it is safer yeah. to do that. And then the other side is that there's a, and this is a story I tell a lot. There was a product manager and one of my very first clients, very early client, senior product person, like senior vice president level person, putting okay. tremendous pressure on the team to get things done. And uh, only like six or seven teams. It wasn't a gigantic organization at the time. And I went to her and I said, stop asking the team to give you dates. They're lying to you. And she goes, what do you mean they're lying to you? I'm like, I don't mean they're, they're not lying to you on purpose. They're trying to make you happy, but they're telling right. you they can do things that they can't. And so I said, what we have to do is you have to give me some time to stabilize the velocity, get this backlog broken down, figure out what's yeah. minimally viable. And then what we can do is we can start making predictions on, you know, time, cost, scope based upon velocity and backlog size, once the system's stable. And she goes, how long is that going to take? And I think at the time I said about three months. And she goes, just shoot me. And I said, well, what are your choices? I said, you go tell, they're going to lie to you. You're going to go lie to your customers. You're not going to be able to done. You're going to be left holding the bag. And, you know, that lady, I think, (laughs) ended up getting fired. Um, Team ended up being wildly successful. And, okay. and, and, and there are, like, once the team stabilizes, you can become really adaptive, but like a big part of our base camp model is like stabilize the system teams. First. Yeah. You know, stable teams. And even if it means I'm um, estimating more than I should or further in advance than I should, or I'm doing more planning than I should um, in the early stages, if I can't build trust by knowing the size of the backlog, establishing stable velocity, yeah. I don't have very much runway to do much else. And so okay. I kind of I kind of categorize that as you gotta balance capacity and demand. I mean, okay. if the team only has forty points of sprint, you can only put forty points in yeah. the sprint. And if not, you're lying to yourself, and you're okay. not going to produce good metrics, reliable metrics. So I'm going to check in with you on something, and I'm going to use okay. it as a jump. We're going to skip the second law. We're going to go to the third. Okay, but, I don't. But I'm I don't gonna, know. I, wanna, they ever I know, them. but they I, they were given to me in a numerical order, so I'm trying okay, to follow cool. what Tim gave me. Um, I've been no saying something in class, and this is what I want to check in with you on, okay. that when a team is told like we need all this stuff and they say they're going to do it knowing that it's more than they can do, that okay. that is literally the most irresponsible and damaging thing a team can do to a company, that no matter how scary or unsafe they feel their job, 
number one job is if I say I want you to eat 800 hot dogs in five minutes for you to say I can eat two or I can't eat 800. Because if you tell me 800 and I plan that and I do that across 100 teams, the whole company's broke. Um, you know, where my, where my brain forked when you went down that path, um, it's like what we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of go to, um, you know, again, I grew up in PMI stuff, right? So I grew up in project management. And, you know, there's this professional code of ethics on mm -hmm. the front page of the PMBOK or something like that. And it, and it was just it just talked about a project manager's responsibility to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. um, so so my first thought when you said that is it, it's interesting is, yes, it's damaging. Mm -hmm. um, I would suggest it's unethical. But but I've sat in the fire and this is back in traditional project management hire right. you know, 20 years ago stuff. Right. Where yeah. I had a I had a, a senior vice president, vice president come in. I can remember his face and his name, which is interesting. I remember he came in. And he goes, the client asked if we can take two months off this project. And I went like I said, OK, so here's my plan. I said, we have a couple of variables. You can either assume that the team wildly overestimated it and we can arbitrarily take, um, uh, you know, hours out of it. Do you want to do that? And he's like, no, I, like, I trust my team. I said, okay, cool. I said, we could add people to this part of the critical path and we could crash the project. Do we have any people we could add? Nope. Cra you know, crash add. meaning in project well, manager speak is not destroy. But yeah, yeah. It means, it, means, it means scrunch it up by adding resources to the critical path, yeah. right? And then like the last bit was we could take out scope. Um, I said, do you want to do that? And he said, no. And I said, well, then, no, we can't take, we can't move in the data, yeah. right? And, and, and I probably did that three or four times. And it like over the course of my short career in that company, and it marginalized me. That was right before I went to go work for version one. And, right. and, I, and I believe it marginalized me and put me in a poor position organizationally, because again, that was an organization in some ways it was easier to say yes and then fail yeah. than to, but, but I felt very strongly it was my ethical responsibility. It's not my choice. Right. As a project manager, it was never my choice to determine the estimates or determine the, right. the staffing or to determine the scope. But, but they got rid of that want, job in Scrum. Well, no. Well, so, well, they got rid of the title. They got rid of the person, but they didn't get rid of the responsibility. I mean, project management and Scrum. Okay, so away. you're putting the ethical responsibility on the development team then? I would say that the team has a responsibility similarly to the project manager. So, okay. so the, the again, just like we talked about, the mechanisms of a well-formed Scrum team is that I should be able to stabilize velocity over time. Yeah. I should, I should know the size of my backlog at whatever period that I need to commit to. If that's a quarter, yeah. I need to understand quarter. It's release, it's sprint, like whatever it is. Okay. So I need to know the size of my backlog and the velocity of my team. And if I know that, if I know that my velocity is 40 and that my backlog is 80 mm -hmm. and I need two sprints and you ask if I can do it in one and I say yes, um, you know, that's unethical, but Okay. I also understand that it's unsafe sometimes to say otherwise in a company. And okay. you got to be able to deal with that, right? And and so but what people what people miss as I was having this conversation about one of our our clients today, you know, classic case where they have so much work to do, they don't have capacity to do it. Right. And what I think what I think people miss a lot of times is a big reason why you pay a lot of attention to backlog decomposition is because it's not so much that you understand everything that you need to build. It's right. so that you can understand specifically what not to build. Right. Okay. So one of the things I think a lot of teams miss is just this relentless idea of minimally viable product. Yeah. And what people will say to me is they'll be like, well, you know, scope's not negotiable. I have to do everything on some level. Scope is negotiable. Yeah. And here's the thing. Um, I, I have a, a belief. I, like I, when I think of scope, it's requirements that are coming from the business. Mm -hmm. But when scopes involve, there's also assumptions about the implementation that I believe go into scope. Okay. I believe that there's assumptions about quality. And some people say, well, no, quality is not part of scope because quality is not negotiable. Well, I'm telling you, if you put fixed time, fixed costs, fixed scope on a team, they will vary quality. 100%. They have to, yeah. Right? So, yeah, so they'll vary quality, right? So so there's a lot of attributes of scope that you can talk about, right? So you can talk about um, as you break the, um, the user stories, 
into thinner and thinner and thinner slices. Right. A lot of times you can find slices that aren't essential. Yeah. Um, you can find technical implementation details or architectural assumptions or platforms or upgrades or refreshes, whatever that are yeah. optional. There are bits um, in there that can be cut and out. Then it, yeah. So, so what it is, if, if I, if I have, if I ethically know that I have more work to do than I can do within the time and cost constraints, then I have to spend that time to do that decomposition to figure out what is the smallest thing that I can possibly do. Okay. Again, it's a balancing capacity yeah. and thing. So, cool. yeah. Well, that so was the lead into trust versus trustworthiness. Yeah, it, it, it's really a lot. It's a really a lot the same thing, right? So when I when I first started talking about that, you know, there's a big mantra that I still hear a lot um, when I go to agile conferences, and it and it you know or I read blogs and things on agile. So like you have to trust the team. 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 And I ask, I go, is the team trustworthy? And that doesn't mean, are they going to steal? Are they going to um, hide? Are they going to do unethical things? Whatever. But what I'm saying is that is that as a leader, I need a reliable system that I can delegate into. I need to be able to put inputs in and I need to be able to get predictable outputs out. And so, you know, in Scrum World, if I put a user story in that's two points and I know the velocity is 10, I know I I should be able to get five two point stories that are to a definition done by the end of the sprint. Mm-hmm. That's what I that's what I mean is trustworthy. And okay. so what I when when a team says, well, you need to trust me, I say, well, are you trustworthy? Yeah. Can you do what you say you're going to do? If you can do what you say you're going to do, I yeah. can trust you. If you can't do what you say you're going to do, I can't trust yeah. you. And most most IT organizations, especially early adopt, I don't say early adopters of Agile that are early in their adoption of Agile. Yeah. Um, are some of the least trustworthy teams that you could possibly find. Sure. And, and it might not even be that they're inherently trustworthy, but like the way the system is architected, they have dependencies everywhere. So yeah. they think they can do it or they have technical debt or they have defects. Right. They have all these different things that cause them not to be able to deliver when they say they're going to. They cause them not to be able to stabilize velocity. Sure. So if you want to be trusted – then you have to be trustworthy. It gets so, into a lot of the talk that I did up in Indianapolis and up in Canada around personality protests and the red and the blue and all that sure. kind of stuff. Trust is a is a blue emotional connection oriented attribute. Yeah. It is facilitated by a well-formed scrum team operating off of known backlog that can get to a definition of done at the end of every sprint. Okay. So that's so the red side is the trustworthy side. The right. blue side is the trust side. Okay. So does that also apply to the company has to be trustworthy? If they say, we want to do agile, we're going to give you what you need. We're not going to try to jam stuff into your sprints. The team has to be able to rely on the fact that they'll make good on that. Right? Well, yeah, yes. That wasn't really the context that I was saying. It I know. I was trying to just see if it, if it, if it works there too. Yeah. So like, so Kind of like to that senior vice president that I talked about. Again, I'm thinking of another example as a CEO of a small security company that I talked with. And um, and I, it was really early coaching, maybe even my first coaching engagement as an independent consultant when I started leading Agile. Okay. And the CEO was in the room after I'd been working with him for a couple of weeks. And he said in front of his team, how can I support this? And I said, I said, give the team space to establish stable velocity. Okay. And then don't overload them. Okay. Once they tell you what they can do, respect yeah. it, right? So you start to see all okay. these interplay. Once they've established capacity, do not overload it with demand. Yeah. Once they've established the ability to be trustworthy, trust them, yeah. right? And it, it all kind of is like variations on the same theme. Okay. But yeah, right. That's very – because I've had teams at times there be like um, the negotiation I would make is I would say like, look – I need you to stab, stabilize stable velocity. That's going to be the basis of everything we're going to do. And they say, well, this is nonsense because they're just going to come and interrupt and they're just going to do this and they're just going to do that. And I would say to him, I'd say, look, like there's two sides to this. Like if you guys can get to a point where there's a stable velocity, if I can teach you and train you to do that, then I can go to the business and train them on how to feed the system in such a way. Sure. That you're not that constantly over capacity. Okay. But it's like I can't – it's like it's hard to do both simultaneously. Yeah. And so a lot of times what the teams are saying is saying trust me first 
And I'm saying become trustworthy. First. Prove you're trustworthy first. Okay. And, and it, it proves seems weird and trust feels well, like – Or demonstrate like, that you are maybe. Trust – yeah, demonstrate that you can make and meet commitments, that you can do yeah. what you say you're going to do, that you have a reliable throughput, you have a published capacity. And then right. once you are trustworthy in that context, ask to be trusted, which means when I tell you this is what I can do – Right. Then believe you me. have to believe me that I can do it. Okay. Either that or the whole system breaks down. It's the interplay yeah. between the two sides breaks down. Okay. And it can be as small as the product owner to the team. Right. And it can be as big as I have a, um, a, a an investment tier, portfolio tier, program tier. And, okay. and there's, there's trust and trustworthiness at every level of the system. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right. We cool. got two more. Okay. Let's go. Known versus unknown. Oh, what was I saying with that? It's been a minute since I wrote that one. Oh, probably what I was thinking about. This is what I was thinking about when I said that. And and you're going to link to all the original ones. So if I yep. if I mess this up, then then maybe yep. I'm just a different variation of the theme, right? Um, you know, maybe you're, like, maybe you're making up a new law of physics as we speak. It's possible. Yeah, maybe right. Maybe so like. Agile is somewhat predicated. Right. Um, there's like two dimensions of known. Like one is, is do I know, and, and I'm probably triggering people using the word requirement, but I, I want to say that instead of using it. <laughs> if I, um, if I, I have known requirements and unknown requirements, okay. right, that I'm constantly having to manage. Yeah. But even within the known requirements, I sometimes have unknown implementation Elements. details yeah. or considerations or what. Here's okay. two very early examples. One was with a small mobile security company that at the time, I don't think they're doing this anymore. Their strategy for um, testing and validating mobile apps is that they were doing um, image recognition of like an iPhone screen. Or okay. something. This is probably 10 years, 12 years ago, right? So I don't even know if that probably sounds silly now. But um, they're doing to like determine if a, uh, a button was on or off or something like that. They're doing image okay. recognition. And I remember like that came up as a feature, user story or something. I'm like, well, let's do story point estimation around it. And they're like, well, I mean, it could take me like three days or three months. It, it depends on how long it takes me to figure it out. Okay. Right? Sure. Um, there's another one that came to mind. I can't even remember the name of this company. <laughs> We're doing um, they're doing like portfolio management, but like but like security portfolio management. And okay. they, they were inventing like new math and new algorithms. And they were they were building this back end that was going to, you know, be an API call or something that was gonna it was gonna implement this new math to solve this problem in this unique way. But they hadn't okay. invented the math yet. So okay. when the user story is inventing math. Yeah. What do you do? Right. And so and so part of the problem, like it, it gets into like it's kind of like basic risk management. Okay. It's like if I have to be in market. Right. By a certain date and in my critical path, again, I know I'm triggering people with my project management language, but if it's in my critical path, meaning it has to happen, it has to be there in order to be able It's in my MVP. Right. right. Um, and it's either an unknown requirement or I've got to invent math or an image recognition algorithm that I don't know how long it's going to take. Okay. Like that is, um, that's the kind of stuff that will start to disrupt the backlog really quickly and cause you. So, so if you, if you are on a short time horizon mm -hmm. and you have to make and meet a commitment, it has to happen. Yeah. Then I would suggest that your backlog has to be largely known. Okay. Right? Now, uh -huh. as you start to move out and you start to look at things that are further in the future or things that are less certain, you know, you know this concept, I don't know if people still use this idea, I'm sure they do, but like the idea of like a spike, right? You can put in experiments, yeah. right? But in the experiments can be time bound and they can, you know, they can be, you know, within a point or two or happen within a right. sprint or whatever. But there is no assurance. So like sometimes what I would do is um, if the hypothesis like there was this one time we were kind of doing like a year release plan and mm -hmm. they would have like features in release two, release three or quarter two, quarter three, quarter four. And I'm like, 
I'm like, do you know exactly what that is and how you're going to build it? And they go, no, we have to do some experiments. I said, so right. this is what I'd recommend. Let's put the spikes in quarter one to figure out what it's going to look like. And then when we get to quarter okay. two release planning, then we can make a decision if that's stable enough. Okay. Then we can either say, okay, we're going to do um, more spikes and do it in Q3, or we think we know enough to get it done in Q2. Right? Okay. That's, just, that's just like project management. Whether the yeah. product owner is doing it or the team's doing it or the scrum master is doing it, that's just project management. It's risk management. Sure. But what people do is they put gigantic unknowns into a release that have to happen, and then they can't figure it out, and then they and then they fail. Freak out, yeah. And that's that's bad strategy, right? And okay. so and so I think when you when you think about things that way and you think about risk management in a really pragmatic way, mm-hmm. it gives you the opportunity to communicate. Now. Here's the bad management side. Well, I just need you to figure it out. I just need you to get it done. Yeah. I just need you to do this, right? Um, there was a fast food restaurant that I was putting together a portfolio model for. This was only a few years ago. Um, and it was like it was like the, the product that we were evolving was a chicken sandwich. And, okay. and how – what is the acceptance criteria for a chicken sandwich? It was if the owner liked it and thought it met the brand standard. Totally subjective. Right? <laughs> the sandwich no, is great, but you're not really hitting the brand, so I, I'm never no, coming back here. No acceptance criteria for it, right? Yeah. So what we basically did is we kind of put like a design thinking cue kind of at the top, and mm-hmm. we put investment increments. Okay, so how much are you willing to spend to make the first rev of a chicken sandwich? Okay. Okay. So I'm willing to spend a million dollars. So I go through, I do all my design thinking, I do all my product evolution, do whatever, get a chicken sandwich. Do you like it? No. Okay, cool. You want to spend another million dollars to do rev two? It's a choice, right? Yeah. Um, Then you could ask yourself, well, what is the outside bound? How many millions, how many revs might I go through? How important is the chicken sandwich to get something I like? Okay. Right. And so you're, so you're starting to deal with like really hyper adaptive stuff. But like to pretend you can estimate how long it's going to take to build a chicken sandwich that somebody likes or how sure. long it's going to take to invent math or new algorithms or whatever, right. like you're fooling yourself as a business if you put large indeterminate things in a release that have to be figured out in the course of that release. Okay. Um, I think SAFE has a, something like an architectural runway item or something like that okay. where it's like you have to get ahead of certain things. There's certain yeah. things – you have to have ready for the infrastructure a year from now that don't fit into a into a quarter. And you have to be doing the risk management, the early planning, and the early execution. Sure. Ahead when so you you've got it. known and unknowns and a way of figuring out your way through the unknowns, right? Because well, that's so part of what you're talking about. The spikes are wherever you're handling it. It's I'm going to investigate this, figure out if this is the right product, does it do the right things. I mean, that's – well, that's like a so so probably like the core principle that you're dealing with is that anytime you have to hit a date, the more yeah. unknowns you have in there or any unknown the risk you have, it's a risk. Yeah. Right. So that's a big part of the reason why sometimes agilists want to get in this pattern of only committing a sprint at a time. Well, this yeah. is what I know. I'll commit to this and I'll do that and then I'll figure out the next bit. And I'll commit mm-hmm. to that. Um, as you go up and as you go out the further planning horizons, right. the way that I often teach it is I say, look, um, it's like if you want to hit an estimate that's a year out, mm-hmm. that estimate is no longer an estimate. It's a constraint. And if you put a okay. portfolio item in Q4 and you're in Q1 and you're saying yeah. this is a million dollars and it's going to take two months and it's going to require these people, like, like just understand that that is now a time and a cost constraint. A thing, yeah. Right. And so now the job isn't to build it and see what happens. The job is to decompose it in such a way and do the smallest thing that will yeah. fit within the time of cost constraint. Okay. And so so when you talk about knowns and unknowns, it's like all you're really thinking about is you're thinking about just risk management at the end of the day. Yeah. If I'm making short term commitments on high risk unknown things. Mm-hmm. I am highly unlikely to be able to deliver what I say I'm going to deliver. Right. Period. Okay. Right. And so again, now why, why do people struggle with that so much is because a lot of times it's really politically dangerous because, yeah. you know, as an entrepreneur or as a business owner or an, an investor or something, it's like we're, we're betting huge sums of money 
mm-hmm. that this stuff can be figured out. Okay. And sometimes it's the success or the failure of the company that's involved. So there's a lot that's of right. pressure, yeah. you know, but it doesn't help us win when we don't know the truth. So okay. we have to and that goes back to the trustworthiness right? thing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you see all this stuff's kind of intertwined. It all ties you know, together. Right? Okay. Yeah. Are you ready for number four? Sure. Let's do it. I, we did this one last time, but encapsulation versus orchestration. But let's put okay. it in here too in case people are looking for it in here. Yeah. What is the difference so, between those two things? Yeah. So so encapsulation is is basically means that everything that I need, require, and responsible for is within my container. Okay. So in a in like an idealized scrum team basically says you have a dedicated team of people, they have ownership over the code, they have mm-hmm. no dependencies, they can release on demand. That is like a fully encapsulated scrum team. Okay. Now, when you don't have those conditions met, I have external dependencies on resources. I have other code bases that I have to interact with that I don't control. I have to interact with the database or make a change in a database that I don't control. Um, I have a I have a requirement dependency with something else. Then then I break encapsulation. Okay. And what orchestration means is that anytime I break encapsulation and I inject a dependency into the system then I have something that I have to orchestrate, okay? Okay? Which basically means coordinate, right? Now, where where Agile goes south with a lot of people is that they go, well, oh, this is the way Agile works. Oh, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. Um, we're, We're fairly accused often, sometimes by clients, sometimes by others in the industry, is that our stuff's heavy. Well, it's heavy in the presence of dependencies, because okay. one of the one of the little things that I'll say, this could also be kind of a physics thing, is you either manage dependencies or you break dependencies. Mm-hmm. And so Agile kind of assumes that dependencies between teams don't exist, or that they're very lightweight and that they get handled via like a scrum of scrums. Sure. <clears throat> now I'll give Jeff Sutherland some credit. Ten years ago, fifteen years ago, he was in Atlanta doing a scrum class. I ended up, he did a talk at the scrum group in Atlanta, and I went to dinner with him, sitting at a big okay. table of people. And I had this idea of like middle layer product owner teams. This, I don't even maybe I hadn't even started leading Agile yet. Maybe I was at version okay. one. And I said, you know, this idea that you guys have a scrum of scrums, I said, the way that I implement it is I say, I kind of have like this group. It looks like this. They're kind of pre-processing this and right. feeding requirements in. And he goes, yeah, do that. And I went, oh, interesting. <laughs> Right. It's like it's like, no, it's like, this it's OK. Real- Are you sure? Yeah. Well, it was like this first realization. I'm like, oh, Jeff's pragmatic. Jeff's yeah. smart. Jeff's doing it's not that it was the first realization. He was smart. But you know what I mean? But yeah. it's like he understands that like the scrum of scrums is a generalized pattern for orchestration across scrum teams. Yeah. But what everybody else goes is they go, oh, Jeff, what's a scrum of scrums? Oh, it's when the scrum masters get together every week after the sprint planning and does this and does that and this is whatever. People go, yeah. oh, that's what scrum of scrums is. I'm like, well, okay, if that's the barely sufficient thing to work, then yep. do that. But if you have architectural dependencies, requirements, dependencies, um, planning dependencies, infrastructure dependencies, like you need something that orchestrates those dependencies. Okay. And, and, and I will tell you the primary failure mode and Agile right now is unmanaged dependencies because people come out of Scrum training and go, okay, this is the way you do Scrum. And Scrum as a default pattern doesn't really say anything about dependencies. Right. Safe does, right? Safe has a way of managing dependencies within a release train. But when you start to cross value streams, you have cross value stream dependencies, right? right? I mean, you can find systems where, you know, dependencies go up five levels of, of decision making to be resolved. Right. And and in the presence of that, it gets really, really expensive. And yeah. and so the option is, well, you either incur that cost or you break the dependency or you reorg and you regroup capabilities and value streams into other objects within the organization. OK, so it's like so like these and things that are would like, be expensive all by itself. What you just described, well, it's expensive, too. But you, but it's always like it's like you pick your pain, right? Yeah. You either have the pain of orchestrating dependencies and you have the latency of orchestrating dependencies mm-hmm. or you have the pain of reorganizing in such a way where you don't have dependencies. OK, so you pick your poison. What you don't get to do, what you don't get to do is pretend that dependencies <laughs> are going to self-organize away by the team. 
Although many people seem to try to do that. Well, well that's what they do, right? Because, and, yeah. and like the, the most extreme example I say is like, so you take a big mainframe team, right? It's working on a 50 year old COBOL legacy, non-modern, non-cloud, non-service oriented application. Right. Okay, so let's start doing Scrum. And every piece of code that you touch is connected to everything else. And you're just like, oh, okay, the impediment is I need to modernize these apps. Yeah. Like that's not within the purview of that team or the scrum master to go do. So they're just okay. stuck. They're just stuck in that environment. And so, you know, some of the things you'll hear me talk about, I've already started talking about a little bit, you know, is the, you know, I'm starting to develop some, some solid thinking around like the relationship of, you know, technical architecture and organizational architecture, how like domain design and business capability modeling overlap and okay. how the understanding of the relationship between those two can lead to like transformation strategies and cloud migration, and digital transformation, right. and readiness. Like there's a bunch of stuff that's, that's going on. It flows off of it. Okay. That flows off of it. This, this one principle of encapsulation versus orchestration. When things are connected to each other, they are hard to move and they are hard to change. Yeah. And it slows things down. And slows things down and reduces right? your agility. Cool. It reduces your agility. 100%. All right. Four right? things. Yeah. That's it, man. And we didn't you hit 20 minutes. What? You, you want to hear, hear where all that stuff came from? It was kind of funny. Sure. I have, a, I have, a, little, I have a little gym in my basement and I was, I was doing something. I can't remember what it was, but I was, I was exercising, lifting weights. I just started, I just had this idea running through my head. And right. so I wrote those four things up on the whiteboard in my gym, and they sat up there for about three months. And I'm like, I kept looking at them every day. I'm like, <laughs> it's like the Velveteen Rabbit. And then they became a, true. Let's do a series on the physics <laughs> after I wrote them up and I looked at them for three months. I thought it was kind of a funny story. So, That's awesome. Yeah, because like a lot of what happens, a lot of how the stuff in, in Leading Agile has been invented, it's like, you know, in the early days, Dennis and I are out consulting yeah. and selling and working with customers, and we're trying to get really complex ideas out to people in a really simple way. And, and there's, there's a couple of like, so, so again, what people latch onto, they want a simple idea. So they latch onto scrum and they say, well, I'm just going to do scrum and all the impediments yeah. go away. So like what I want to latch onto something is like teams, backlogs, working tests of software, encapsulation, right. orchestration, capacity, demand, trust, trustworthiness, knowns, yeah. unknowns, kind of stuff. Because, but the problem with that kind of thinking is that it forces you into a kind of a conundrum, right? right? A paradox Take where it's like, conundrum. it's like, you know that this is true, but I don't have the ability to change it. So I, I, I have a hard time seeing well, yeah, it. You don't want it to be true. So you don't let yeah, yourself. You, you don't want it to be true. Right. And that's why I just cause it physics. It's all physics. Cause it's like, I cannot want gravity to be true all day long. Yeah. But if I jump out the window, I'm landing pretty hard. And so, and that's what we're doing. We're choosing to ignore some of these physical, you know, physical physics properties of, yeah. of how organizations work and um, frustrating a lot of senior leaders. Is what it comes so down. I used to, I have a short story before I ask you the big question at the end. Oh. I used to run this PMO in Texas and we had this big weekly status meeting and this one part of the company was always over allocated and I'm in a meeting one day and we got this new gig and I'm like, well, who's going to handle it? And the head of the department says, you know, Sundrum's going to handle it. I'm like, Sundrum's already uh, allocated at 450%. This will put him at 550%. And they were like, yes, exactly. Yeah, just do that. Right. <laughs> okay. okay. Sure. Yeah. It's well, not going to work, but that's fine. What's, what's funny is that, or, or somebody who's allocated to 20 things, 5% at a time. Yeah. I had this, I had this boss, I had this boss one time and I said, and he had, and this is, this is early in, I must've been 32, 31, something like that. And, and he goes, Hey, can you take this project? And I said, his name was Wes. I said, Wes, I said, I have 20 things. So in the course of a week, right. If I'm here 40 hours, I have two hours per project, assuming no switching costs, no anything. Yeah. Like that is enough to have one meeting with somebody once a week and maybe write something down and do some emails. Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah. So it's like, it's like, sure. If you want me to take it, but I don't know what you want me to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, take it. it'll sit here on my desk. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll do my best, but it's, I'll do my best to poke the person who's doing the work. Yeah. And yeah. we had crazy things like where there'd be like one person project. So I'm like a project manager assigned to one person doing a project and yeah, just companies are insane sometimes. It's interesting. So if cool. you've been watching these, there's going to be links in the show notes to webinars Mike's done on each one of these if you want to go deeper. And I appreciate you making time to do it. Yeah, of course, um, man. So it's all in one place. And now um, I have a weird question, a deeper Shoot. question than usual. So yeah. 
with all this stuff, I mean, as you've kind of grown through leading Agile um, and, and the way things are now, I'm wondering, for a, in your opinion, what is it that leaders at companies need from the people around them that is the hardest for them to get? And this this a, doesn't have to be your answer for leading agile. It could be what you you know when you talk to other people. But I'm just wondering, like, if the people at the company were trying to support the leadership the way that they want leadership to support them, what is the, either the hardest thing to ask for or the hardest thing to get? Um, you know, I'll answer it from the perspective of being an entrepreneur. Like, I got really frustrated hiring people into roles. Mm-hmm because I thought they could figure out things for me. And what I, and it's not that people couldn't figure things out, but it's like when you're building an organization and inventing a model and doing a bunch of this stuff, it's like you have a lot of ideas in your head that aren't really fully formed. Yeah. And so, and so what I, what I kind of realized early on is that I can't, I can't, Often, when it's really core to what we do, I can't delegate invention. Okay. Um, I can't delegate leadership. Can't delegate vision. Right. Um, like something like in that space. I'm, but these I'm are all things where what you would need is somebody to be a second you. Well, well, so, well, so, so a lot of it is is that there's a book. Um, and I'm not a huge like traction entrepreneur operating system person, but there's some good ideas in it. And the guy that I think Wickman is the guy's name who wrote that book, wrote a book called Rocket Fuel. I think I might be misquoting that, but I think that's who wrote it. And uh, and he talks about the idea of a like a visionary integrator pair. Mm-hmm. So so I think somebody who's like a visionary needs to be able to have somebody who can go implement their ideas faithfully. You know, okay. one of the biggest challenges because we're out on the edge of so much stuff, um, like Steve Jobs yeah. and Waz. Yeah, like I need somebody. Yeah, yeah. Like I need somebody who I often find myself needing people that can hear my vision and are willing to solve problems with me within constraints. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's a complicated idea. Like I don't I don't know. Right. I mean, maybe if I was going into a more general leadership situation. Right, getting out of me and leading agile and being an entrepreneur and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, like I would I would start to lean more towards reliable systems that you can delegate into the things that we were we're talking about. Like if I put X things in, I get the right things out. Um, but all of that is system design. What it, maybe like the more broad thing? I, I'll, I'll actually say something. Well, like can really, I before you go to the other yeah, thing? I want to ask. wandering all over the place. It's so, okay. How yeah, much do you think that that depends on them? knowing you and your mental models and the way you solve problems because it's not just you have to be able to trust them with the problem but but you need to trust them that they're going to think through the problem and work through the problem in a way that is in alignment with your way of doing it right yeah i mean so yeah so like the what where i was i was kind of gonna see if i can tie it back like one of the things that, um, like, I'm really good with ambiguity. I'm really good with abstraction. I'm really good with patterns. Um, I'm really good with, like, setting outcomes and giving people a lot of room. Um, I'm good with principles. I'm good with physics, right, all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I think the ability to hold, like, again, all over the place. Back when I was doing project management and I was building Gantt charts for people, what I would say is like the Gantt chart is like a representation of the project. It's it's like the it's like the map. It's not a finger the terrain. pointing at the moon. Yeah, yeah. And you have to recognize that while this gives us a visual of how the project is progressing, it there's no way that it can that it can um, comprise all the sure. work and interactions that are required to actually do this. Okay, and so. You know, and so like this recognition and to be able to hold the idea that um, anything you do is any system that you build, if you're dealing with any kind of knowledge work, I think it's just a representation. It's just a map. It's not the terrain. And and I think that when people get into high pressure systems or they're, you know, operating within constraints or they have a lot of uncertainty, 
uh, most people will go, okay, tell me what to do. What are yeah. the instructions, right? Let me follow the instructions. And, and what I think the best employees do, best leaders do, is they can hold that system in one hand and understand that it's not the full representation of the other. Sure. And use this as a guide, but also use their talent, their skills, and creativity. I tell people with Leading Agile's model, there's no way that I could document. We have a lot of stuff documented about how to do transformation. Yeah. There's no way that I could sufficiently document a um, – a model that would drop into every client and be washed, rinse, and repeat. Yeah, it's so like there's a there's like this dance between I want the model and yeah. I want to see evidence that we're running the model, but you also have to exercise a tremendous amount of creativity within that frame, right? Within that model. So, so there's this dance, order, chaos, right? Um, yin yang kind of a thing where I need structure. I need I need enough to hold the the conceptual integrity and the engagement together, but yeah. it also needs you to be creative as, as you can be within that outside frame. So I know it's hard, right? Yeah. But. Well, I want to check with the other thing because one thing's been rolling around in my head and I'm going to talk about music now since we're at yeah. the end of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> when I've read stuff about Pete Townsend writing music for The Who, he would yeah. talk about how he understood enough about Roger Daltrey's voice to be able to write music that he might not be able to sing it but he knew where he wanted to go and he knew that Roger Daltrey was going to take it to a place that nobody else could get to. Okay. And that pairing together and that trust, that sounds kind of like that's, that's what would be ideal, yeah. right? I, mean, I, could, I could see that. I could see that. Okay. You know I mean? Dennis and I have had that relationship at times, you know, me and Chris Beale have had that relationship at times. Um, you know, again, I, th I think there's a constant, um, and the word I want to use is dance. It's a dance yeah. between structure and chaos and order and disorder and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And, and it's like, and it's like, again, I think when people feel uncertain, they, they crave order. Yeah. But sometimes there's like an element of dancing in that uncertainty so that's where the magic happens, right? Yeah. Where that's where that's where the, it's like you can have a process for painting, but the but the process isn't the art. Yep. You know, you can. I had one guy tell me one time he was going to. It's a guy I met at a conference or something. He was saying that he had studied at Berkeley and and John Mayer was there, and um, when he was at Berkeley, and he and he said that every time he was a really good guitar player, he said when he played guitar, it was like a math problem in his head. He, like he's like calculating this and scales and this yeah. and blah blah blah. And when you saw something like John Mayer play, it was just a creative process. And okay. and so the people that are really really talented figure out how to bring. Yes, I know music theory. Yes, I know scales. Yes, I know chords. Yes, I know structure. Right. I know this. But it, there's an artistry in it. Yeah. It's really, really hard to balance. And and you can be pretty effective following the rules. And you right. can be an artist not following any rules. But there's a beauty when you can bring just enough structure and just yeah. enough chaos and disorder. And I think that's where magic happens a lot of times. All right. So, Okay, That's man. a good, awesome. good place to stop. Thank you very much okay. for doing this. You're welcome, man. Thanks, Dave. See, right, you, man. see you, Bye.